Peter Weir directed Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, the only film in the history of Friendly Fire to get a perfect 10 nose stitches from all three hosts when we rated the film. He is therefore one of the giants of the genre. But way before his masterpiece slash second-to-last movie, Peter Weir made a name for himself as one of the leaders of the Australian New Wave, a movement that saw the cinema of Australia surge in popularity among international audiences. If you've seen films like Walkabout, Mad Max, or Crocodile Dundee, you've seen some Australian New Wave, which spanned the late 70s up until the end of the 80s. Today's film is from right in the middle of that movement and was a big part of how Peter Weir was able to get jobs directing big American and international productions later in his career. Gallipoli is a war film that takes its sweet time getting to the war. It's a film about a pair of talented foot racers that is not in a particular hurry to tell how they went from being a couple of country bumpkins to enlisted men in the Light Horse, a division of the Anzac troops being mustered in Australia, sent to Cairo for training, and then on to Turkey, where they serve as cannon fodder to take some of the heat off of the British troops that are trying to take control of the Dardanelles from the Ottomans amidst some of the bloodiest fighting of World War I. The Gallipoli campaign was a hugely important aspect of the First World War, having accounted for a quarter million casualties on... <clears throat> both sides <clears throat> it was a great victory for the Ottomans and a devastating defeat for the Entente generally and Winston Churchill personally there's a big story to be told about how and why this campaign happened but that's not the perspective of this film rather this film is doggedly interested in what motivates young men to join a war that couldn't possibly be more remote to their lives and where they live Mark Lee's Archie and Mel Gibson's Frank don't need to go to war, and in fact they could be world-class athletes instead, but they are drawn to the adventure of war. That adventure is not what it seems, though. The film isn't a coming-of-age story because it ends brutally and abruptly when Mel Gibson is unable to reach the front lines in time to call off an ill-conceived advance. Archie is killed in one of the all-time bummer freeze frames to end a movie, Frank is fast on his feet, but not fast enough. We don't stop them there. They could end up here. Today on Friendly Fire, Gallipoli. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie show with the hosts that are crude, undisciplined, and the most ill-mannered podcasters you've ever encountered. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Rodder. I was going to do that in the Australian accent in which it is uttered when uh, in the movie, and then I found this goof. I'm going to get the goof out right away. Get Whoa. it. Earliest goof. Go. The distinctive, quote, Australian accent actually didn't emerge until after World War I. What? No. This is, this is something I've been trying to corroborate through internet research, and I am not totally sure I, I can. That seems impossible. They're saying they just t had British accents, and then after they developed an identity in the 20th century, they started talking like that? 
Yeah, because it was like, I mean, I think it was kind of like a, there was kind of a something distinctive about the way Aus- Australians spoke because it was prisoners from all over the British Isles that right. were sent there. Sure. There must have been like a kind of average, averaging effect. Yeah. But this, whatever this commenter is saying is that, is that like, like, like the get I might, like, like that thing wow. didn't happen until after World War One. And that's amazing to think about. You know, one person had to have started that, right? Like the Chet Hayes. Yeah, of, su- some super cool <laughs> of dude. Australia started doing it and everyone else is like, what are you, why are you talking like that? Before he's that, like, they were just like, like no. uh, 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 put some of the shrimp on the barbie. This is how we speak now. Yeah, but and then he was like, spread. wine, 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 wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, to all of our Australian and uh, and uh, We don't know if Australia is still going to be there by the time this oh, get, comes true. out because it's, true. you know, the country is currently ablaze but we do have a lot of listeners there and so uh of course we mean you no more disrespect than we normally direct at you <laughs> just the standard amount but uh but please if if you uh if you have additional information about the australian accent just email us at go fuck yourself <laughs> at maximum dot sex uh, in America, right, the uh, Australians are fetishized, um, in, and we have like we have what a pantheon of like the ten great Australians. There's the guy from Midnight Oil. Uh, There's Crocodile Dundee. That's right. There's Mel Gibson. Uh huh. Yeah. They're uh, in excess. The band in excess, yes. and of course ACDC, the greatest of all ambassadors for Australia. True. <laughs> Producers note: We forgot Steve Irwin, the best Australian of them all. Uh, and then we have a lot of actors who are Australian. It's a shame that all those Australian actors are generally suppressing their accent. Yeah, we they do. They Nicole try to talk like- Kidman. That's right. But we got Hugh Jackman. Yeah, keep going. We got Heath Ledger. Oh, I didn't know that. Heath Ledger is Australian. I or just was? typed in Australian <sighs> actors into Google, and this is what's come up. Heath Ledger. I thought he was from Brokeback Mountain. I feel like a lot of those um, male actors that are like, you're like, why is this guy the star of a huge Hollywood movie? Uh, the Hemsworths, you never asked that question. The Hemsworths, yeah, he, all Australia. It's very clear. Yeah. Very clear why those guys are the stars of huge Hollywood movies. But I don't know. Mel Gibson, technically an American. I think he, I think he was born in New York and then moved to Australia at a young age. Oh, interesting, or intradasting, as we as we say. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know the greatest uh, Australian actor, of course, is Russell Crowe. Sure. Yeah, uh, of Master and Commander, directed by Peter Weir. Wait a minute, of Gallipoli. No thanks. If you blokes all want to go and get yourselves shot, go ahead. I have never, I had never seen this movie, and this movie came out at a time when I should have seen it. This was the type of movie I went to see with my dad in 1981, and for whatever yeah. reason, I didn't, and I don't know why. I do not know why. I don't know why I didn't rent it uh, on VHS in the in the many years that I should have rented it between 1981 and 2000 or whenever people stopped renting videos. I never saw it, and so I was. I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised at the way the film was paced. Mm. I was surprised at the story it told slash tried to tell. Uh, <laughs> Sick burn. <laughs> and uh, 
and th- I mean, there's a lot to take in here. And I, I found over the course of the movie, not sure where, how I was supposed to be moved or, you know, what kind of, cause it's, a, it's basically a movie about a walkabout for most of it. You it's, know, it, it, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a buddy film. Yeah. It feels like the, it feels like a, like an Australian, like college summer picture. And then it becomes incredibly moving in its final act. But I yeah. didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be what it was. I feel like you could grab the slider of where the war started in this film. And I kept on waiting for the war to begin every 15 minutes. Yeah. Like, right. I don't know how I've been trained as a film viewer to like expect things at certain times, but eventually an hour went by and we're still not in war. Right. I'm like, well, is you know, it's, are we ever going to get there? Story is really different, but structurally, it's actually got a lot in common with Hacksaw Ridge, mm. where it's a, about life before the war, the process of enlisting, the process of training, and then you get to the war, and it's one mission. It's one, it's it's one little adventure at the end that all of that was leading up to. Uh, a lot like Hacksaw Ridge is our main character being unfit or unqualified in some way to participate in the war that they want to. That's right. that's a really great comp that I didn't consider. There were a lot of spots in the movie where I expected a jump cut because there could have been any number of like sort of like, well, they, they, they won the race and then boom, they're in the war. And it really, I mean, we basically... The only thing that was left out of this story was however long it took them to go by ship from Perth to Egypt. To Cairo. Uh, <laughs> but but we saw like every other thing. We saw every time they went to the bathroom from 1910 to the present. An interesting thing <laughs> happens in this film because it's it's not just our main characters incidentally not finding themselves in war. It's that... I mean, our main character gets bloody feet. Well, of course he's not going to be able to to go into the war. Our other main character can't ride a horse. Well, he's not going to war. Like, they're actual examples of reasons why they can't right. or shouldn't participate all along the way. Our main character is uh, is like arguably a either a coward or a narcissist for almost the entire war, an opportunist, certainly, never really heroic you didn't find his uh i found those scenes pretty pretty touching like when he when he's being uh when he's in that in that circle with his friends and everyone wants to go to war and he's being peer pressured into it yeah i i was really struck by those moments and i didn't feel like uh mel gibson's reasons for for not wanting to join like i thought that they were totally valid I didn't think that was an example of cowardice. Well, not cowardice, but we see that character in a lot of films. The the guy that is dubious about about signing up. It's not his war. He's not there to fight for the whatever, the corporations or the British or whoever. And we always find that character eventually gets convinced by his friends to go, to sign up. And it's the scariest character in any war film for me. Is the guy that's like, I'm not, I don't need your stupid war. Yeah. 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 Um, and then winds up in it. <laughs> but, but we were set up in this movie to think that he, that Gibson had either some kind of cool callowness that wasn't so easy to 
shape or that he actually had, he actually was a wheeler dealer and was going to find a way to exploit it to yeah. make money or something. It did feel like he'd have an angle, but he was utterly just like everyone else. He just had zero angle. Yeah. What was crazy was that there was this central, this, this, this plot in the middle that was very much about class. And yeah. one of the characters, you know, our, our, our nominal lead character, um, in the form of Archie, Archie Hamilton, Archie like gets into the light horse. He's a, he gets to wear the fancy hat, but like Archie lives on an outpost out in the middle of the outback. Like he's not a rich guy. He's not a fancy guy, but somehow in, it seems like he comes from a fancy family that is like, for some reason out there farming dirt yeah he's he's like slightly more fancy because uh because his family has photographs of them my uncle's read three books <laughs> did you guys get star wars vibes from the beginning of this film and with how much mark lee looked like uh luke skywalker and you felt like they were on tatooine yeah out there and like the war is coming, he wants to participate. Yeah, right. He's got a special power, which is the running. Right. And, and they ride those weird beasts. What are they called? Horses. Horses. He can hit a womp rat at forty yeah. uh, kopecks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Kelecams. laughs> um That setting and the whole the whole lead up to the foot race. You know, that's all this foreshadowing that you're. You wait the whole movie to see it pay off. And the pay- these guys being good at running being will be running. Right. totally key to the climax of this film. And it definitely is there, but in an incredibly unsatisfying way. <laughs> yeah. Like the running does not, the running is just, uh, I mean, the running is like a major plot moment right a, a, right. a tent pole the first third of the film is about how great these two guys are at running and then it does not it does not really serve them in any significant i mean like it's the reason for their friendship but it's not a moment in the battle that comes later no the running it, we are set up to believe that running will help and yeah. all it does like all it does is it helps archie Basically, he misses getting that me- message to the to the captain or whatever by by thirty five seconds. Right, he can hear the whistle and go, and he goes, "No." Would Archie have done it faster? Yeah, that's the thing. Archie was Archie was the better runner. Maybe Archie would have saved all those men. No kidding, right? Really? Well, I don't know. You know what ends up happening? I mean, is Archie's fast, but I don't think he's thirty seconds faster. The only person yeah, that they- Archie saves is Mel Gibson. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. And is that is that who we wanted saved in this movie was Mel Gibson? What's he going to go do? Archie at least would have gone back and farmed more dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Their friendship is also like like they take to each other almost instantly and then like Mel Gibson's ready to just kind of like leave his other buddies hanging in the infantry when it gets a chance to be light horse buddies with Archie. Let me just say. Yeah, those, those other friends are jerks, and no, I don't think they're, they're friends not. at all. They're totally friends. Those guys were great. They don't have running in common. Let me say, let's. we should just get this <laughs> right out on the table. The incredible wow. homoeroticism of this movie. 
it is, I mean, basically these two dudes, Archie and Frank fall in love at first sight and their relationship is 100% romantic throughout the film. They gaze into each other's eyes. Mel Gibson abandons his other friends just to wear a fancy hat with, with Archie and they do all kinds of naked swimming and and uh, like piggyback rides. Yeah, but they're also banging farmers' daughters and Moroccans not, left and right. Not really, not really. We don't see that. We don't see. We don't. They, I mean, they that that there's farmer. Some, there's some implied Moroccan banging. That farmer's daughter was just uh, was just a, a girl to come between them to intensify their <laughs> their uh, like hot competition they have with each other but it's not for the girl it's 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 between them and i the don't Moroc- know man moroccan- i'm reading this paper and i'm i'm just sort of shaking my head there was no moroccan because it was in egypt unless unless all the prostitutes in egypt are moroccans which i doubt which i doubt hmm. and there wow. were two prostitutes so you can imagine mel gibson probably just sat in a chair Probably sat in a chair. Hey, and Adam, can cigarette. you just check and see which tabs John has open on his computer at this point? <laughs> uh, I watched this movie and wondered whether Peter Weir was making a little bit of a soft core here. I it's pretty I'm, it's pretty close to a. I enjoy the take, but I think a big part of that take comes from just how angelic Mark Lee is in this film. He is. He is a he's a beautiful person. He's yes. impossibly beautiful and blonde and cherubic. But like he's just like perfectly innocent. Part of his, part of what makes him beautiful is the way he looks at Mel Gibson with tremendous longing. His eyes fill with dew, not tears, dew, literal morning dew. I don't think that there's dew. anything attractive about Mel Gibson in this movie. I think he's greasy and gross. Well, it's because you are not someone <laughs> who is liable to fall in love with Mel Gibson, whereas... I mean, I'm an Archie man. I'm just going to say it right now. Huh? Yeah. If I had to choose... He's prettier. I was watching this movie on my iPad on the airplane, and my wife, a Jewess, leaned over to me to express how beautiful she thought Mel Gibson was hmm. in this movie. He's <laughs> awful I, pretty. I was shocked. He's awful pretty. Wow. Did she... Okay. This is going to sound like a cut, and I don't mean it, but did she know it was Mel Gibson? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Of course she knew it was. What are you? <laughs> I mean, he looks he looks very young. He's visibly Mel Gibson. He's, he's still Mel Gibson. She, she was saying he's beautiful in spite of what a dirtbag he is. Wow. You know, we how, how far are we into the show before Ben got in that Mel Gibson is a dirtbag? 17 minutes All right. of recording time before Cash he- Cash your tickets if you had uh, under 20 minutes. <laughs> Uh, I did. I really felt like there was a lot in this film. This movie has more male nudity in that in the third of four acts than you see in most war movies. That was not an element in the version of the film I saw in middle school. No, 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 no. They cut out all the butts. Yeah, but there are a lot of butts. That's more Mel Gibson butt that you're going to get in most films. There's like taint in this movie. Yeah, when they when they carry that guy out of the water who'd been shot, I was like, "Where are your hands, guys?" <laughs> and then they and then they the wider shot reveals just where the hands are. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a take you could use in a in a contemporary film. No, I don't think so either. It's very it it was pretty rough. It was rough trade, is what it was. <laughs> 
I think that the there's a there's a thing I mean, about you, this. Mo- you know whether or not that guy has hemorrhoids or not. You yeah you you do. There's a. I can see why this movie is important to Australians because it gives this really broad picture. It tells the story of of Australia coming into its own. And so it it has the it has elements where it where it feels like they're compressing the whole story of Australia into one, you know, like like a series of gut punches where it's like this is the legend this is this is how we went from being a, a a colony a territory to a nation and so there's a there's a lot of information i think that needs to get in there that isn't that's kind of extraneous to the actual story of like the anzac and gallipoli and and war and and I guess some of that stuff maybe um, because we aren't we didn't go into this film expecting it to be a nation building movie uh, <laughs> that it that I I think I was watching it kind of feeling like oh there's a there's an awful lot of backstory that feels like maybe a lesser Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid like the the walk across the salt pan is super that's super interesting yeah. I mean, from my standpoint, I was like, would I have walked across that salt pan? Probably would have. What would I have done when I ran out of compass? I hope I, I would have hoped to have met the man on the camel. But, you know, that was like 40 minutes. Has there yeah. ever been a film with feet in worse condition than Archie's in this <laughs> film? Because he does that, that race in the beginning and they get all chopped up. And then he almost immediately walks across the desert. Like, his feet are never well. Well, think about Platoon when that guy sprays the insect repellent on his feet and the skin all falls off. Ugh. And then Sergeant Barnes isn't fooled by it and he's like, get nah. your boots on. I bet I bet the, the feet have time to heal on the boat to, to Cairo, though. That's a long boat ride, it right? It is a long boat ride. The, the interesting thing about Gallipoli... Uh, battle, let's say the uh, campaign. Let's call it the campaign. Took a year. The Australian, the Australians and New Zealanders and the Brits and the French were there, trying over and over and over again to seize the peninsula and to seize that waterway. And so, at the beginning of this movie, we see people in Australia reading the newspaper saying, "Our brave boys at Gallipoli," and there's time for our heroes to to read about it in the newspaper, hear about it everywhere they go, decide to enlist, enlist, ship out, train, and then be sent to the front. And there's it's still the same campaign the entire time. Yeah. So but what we're watching is a is a movie that that spans basically an entire year. And um and when we arrive at Gallipoli it feels like they're still on the, I mean, they literally are on the beachhead, right? They're nine months into this campaign and they haven't moved a hundred yards up the hill. Very early on when we're on that beachhead, when Mel Gibson throws open the flap of his tent and we see like, and we go out the tent with him and we see that wide territorial shot. It's one of the best shots I've ever seen in any movie. There's some great 
great looks here, and that's one of them. It's a weird vibe when we're on that beach, right? Everyone's just sort of camping, hanging out. Eventually, I mean, you may get shot in the water if you go skinny dipping, but it's fine. The mortars landing everywhere does not kill the mood at all. Everybody is like kind of enjoying themselves. It's kind of like a, a fun adventure vacation. You don't see anyone flinch in those scenes. And I think that's a big, big part of it in, in that vibe. It's an entire nation of Duvals. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it's definitely an example of how you could be a soldier in World War I and experience tremendous trauma and have a lifetime of post-traumatic stress disorder that you never acknowledged and that no one acknowledged, right? Like, to be, to be camping on a beach and be expected by your friends for, for the standard to be like, I, you know, wash or bar, you know, whatever, more Barbies or whatever it is that they Keep say going. to one another, right? Fosters <laughs> for that's beer or whatever. That's it. Yeah. That was the, that was the tagline. Yeah. But bombs going off all around you, like that is going to fry your, your, your brain and your emotions you're going to be broken forever, right? No, you're never going to hear a book fall on the floor or a door slam or a car backfire for the rest of your life. My Anne's been in a butt. <laughs> and yet, by World War One, in World War One terms, like men were not allowed yeah. to flinch or or show that anything that that was having any effect on them at all. It's it's in such studied contrast to the way we see the effect of shelling portrayed in certainly in Vietnam movies, but even in world war two movies that have been made since the nineties where, yeah. the, where we watch characters break in nobody response has a shaky hand. Yeah. But nobody's got a shaky hand in this movie. They're just like, yeah, bombs are falling all around us and that's just how God intended. They're still winning foot races despite severe foot trauma. Like it's just like stiff upper everything. In terms of the historical accuracy of the I don't I don't think that the timeline is very historically accurate but the the frustration of of almost every trooper that landed on that beach and was like uh, led so poorly through those campaigns um they really really never did for the most part make it off those beaches um, because the Turks just kind of held them to the ridge and they would like, like most of world war one, you know, you'd make an advance and then for whatever reason they couldn't or didn't hold that ground and they got pushed back the next day. God, that going over the top thing also really reminds me of Hacksaw Ridge. Now that I think of it, Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. This movie really must've made a big impression on Mel Gibson. The case that's made in the in these combat scenes is that the the British officers sort of thought as the of the Anzac troops as being uh, quite a bit more expendable than than the home island troops. Like uh, like we're gonna we're gonna do this offensive, but we need to send you guys into the meat grinder to distract the Turks while we while we do the real thing that we're trying to do. I mean, this is the like super duper era of uh, British Empire, right? And I think in the actual campaigns, like the Gurkha troops uh, went into battle as unified 
squads like it was like the first Gurkha and the second Gurkha or whatever they fought together as a team and the Gurkhas made a huge impact on this war uh or I mean they they were they were um kind of instrumental to some of the some of the battles where the allied troops actually made an advance and held it and so the Anzac troops I think were were yeah thought of as unruly and from the provinces, but they played a an important strategic role. I think the I think the British leadership had like unearned contempt for everyone, and they got their asses handed to them over and over because of it. Like they had nothing but contempt for the Turks, and they thought that this was going to be one of these. It's a classic, right? The where they thought it was going to be a three week campaign or a, a ten day campaign. They'll greet us as liberators. Yeah, right. They at one point they they said uh, they said uh, the Turk when they surrender will will wave any garment in the air. Uh, if you see a white flag, be very suspicious because the Turks don't have any white garments. They don't have access to white fabric. Wow. Uh, just like so, they just believed their own racism hype. Oh, they just thought that they were going to roll over them. And of course, the Turks at this point were supplied by the German army and Navy, but they were also like, although the Ottoman empire was shrinking, it was a enormous and powerful, a a formerly powerful empire, but still had some teeth. Guys, I have a moment of penetry here. Uh, None of this happened from from our old friend, Turkfan69. Oh no, really? Yeah. Not Turkfan69. He's he's commented on the Gallipoli page. Turkfan69 doesn't believe that that these troops were killed by the Turkish? No. No. What? No, Turkfan69 doesn't believe believe any of this. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) What does Turkfan69 believe? (laughs) I don't know. The thing is that this, you know, Ataturk, I don't know how much you guys know about Ataturk, but the founder of modern Turkey. That's 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 like when you're slapping your Turkish friend on the back. Ataturk. Ataturk, uh, uh, who who became like the, the really the founder of modern Turkey, the first president of Turkey, the, the, the man that made all the reforms. The man they named the country after. That's right. The, well, yeah, or he, they named him after the country. Uh-huh. Um, he was... Like, it's like Jomo Kenyatta. It's just like, man, like you are kind of destined to lead your people with a name like that. <laughs> no, it actually is a, it is something that they, uh, it's like an, an appellation that they gave him later. Oh, okay. Mustafa Kemal was his name. And he was a lieutenant colonel commanding the Turkish side of one of the wings of this, um, of this sort of defense. And it was, it, he became like the hero of, of the Ottomans. So much so that he he rode that into the revolution that toppled the the last pasha that ended the caliphate that that begat modern Turkey. So this was these are the things that are commemorated in Turkey. These events as like the the um, these are the birth throws. Yeah. But Turkfan69 denies it. That's well, I so can't, weird. I can't well, believe Turkfan that Well, Turkfan69 denies any other view of this moment in history besides one from Turkey. I see. Like, there is no Turkish perspective here. And I think that's yeah, what the- Turkfan69 hates. We get to anything. see them. We get to see them from behind their 
machine guns mowing Australians down. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the Turk fan sixty nine cut of Gallipoli uh-huh. is just that that <laughs> just two that minute part. that two minute clip of behind the Turkish machine guns. And then Archie gets cut down, roll credits. It's it won best short film at the Turkish International <laughs> Film Festival in nineteen eighty one. Turk fan sixty nine's like, this is my original work. Yeah. And they're like, Wow, good job. <laughs> How did you get Mel Gibson? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spent most of the movie kind of bobbling along in a buddy picture mode, never really knowing where the emotional center was, never really knowing how much to care about anybody, not not super invested in the character arc of anybody. But when we landed on that beach, there's a scene where you just hear that machine gun. <laughs> And the sound design of it, which is kind of maybe a slow rate of fire relative to like yeah some some more modern Gatling gun like you you just you hear each bullet kind of and the the bark of it 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 like it gave me chills and that sound more than anything really put me in that trench at that moment and made me realize how how much was at stake how dangerous it was it it was a it was a sound effect that stirred fear in me and that fear stayed with me for the rest of the picture the last quarter of the film is really harrowing and i think a big part of it is that the commander of the of the australians you'd look at the casting and think we were getting your typical sort of fat sallow um we get a we get a couple of authority figures here we get major barton who's in the trench right are you talking about him i'm talking about major barton because we meet him all the way back in australia right he's great yeah he brings the bottle of champagne for to celebrate his his anniversary and he tells frank and archie to go go have a drink after they sneak into the into that fancy dinner, right? Yeah, and he's the one that he's the one that he's there at the very start when they're sorting people, and he kind of seems like maybe he's going to be the he's going to be part of the problem. He's the one that that identifies uh, identifies Archie. He he recognizes that last name as a pseudonym, right? But kind of lets it slide. We really figure out his humanity at that moment on the on the the quay when his wife is putting him on board the ship. And they have s- clearly so much love for one another that all of a sudden the movie is is telegraphing to us, hey, Major Barton, although he looks like like a fat officer, is really a he's a whole person. He's he's very well characterized too because he he's quite capable as a commander, but also like in this impossible position and and really like like you really feel the emotions of that as he as he deals with it like his fear and the and the senselessness of it i mean the part of the film that affected me most wasn't archie's death it was major barton choosing to go over the top with his men knowing what it would mean for him yeah he's his the- was the greater sacrifice because archie doesn't know i don't think that he's going to die as much as major barton does and so Barton ends up being the hero of the film in a way. You feel the weight of the responsibility on him. When when we see Mel Gibson at the end kind of 
fall to his knees and go, no, in slow motion. He gives his Wilhelm scream. Um, and then he like falls off the top of a building. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you, you feel how awful that moment was. But you also, even though you've spent this whole movie with Mel Gibson, you're kind of left with like, so what? What was the point of all that? Like Mel Gibson survives it, presumably, or maybe he dies later. But if he survives, he goes back to Australia and and like loses his money in a series of bad deals. Like it's I mean, he's taken <laughs> he's taken his his fiercest rival off the track board. He's gonna go make a lot of money on this on this whole running for cash circuit right. that he he's got. He going. might go to the Olympics from Australia for all yeah. I know. Goes to the dirt farm, hires Archie's uncle to, to be his coach. Yeah. It's a World War One story condensed into this hard point that's directed at this one guy that we've grown to really respect and admire. I mean, that's what makes the ending so effective. As you say, Adam, him turning around and saying, I can't ask these men to do something that I'm not prepared to do myself. And it comes on the heels of true evil for me. Like when... Robinson knows the score and stays firm on the order, knowing that he's asking everyone to go to their, to their deaths, like to that be immediately followed by, by the grace note of major Barton's willingness to, to die with his men, the men that he's brought up into this moment, who's, who's taken like a personal investment in, like, I think their proximity, those two scenes are what, are what make the film great to me. I know up until now, it doesn't sound like you guys have a great amount of affection for Gallipoli, but like I thought that sequence of events was profound. Do we see Barton die? I don't think we do. I think he just goes over and then we cut back to Mel running. Yeah, you, you, I don't think you can avoid the conclusion that he dies, though. No, we cut back to Mel Wilhelm screaming. He stops running at that point. He recognizes the futility. So much of this film in its in its war fighting parts are like the insanity of like a bad plan being bolted onto the end of a failed plan and on and on. And like they're waiting for the ships to soften up the machine guns. And it's like three artillery shells qualify as the softening. Oh, it and was- it doesn't happen. <laughs> It, this is actually true. This is a true historical thing. And I think it was in the movie, it's portrayed as they hadn't synchronized their watches. Yeah. And Colonel Robinson. Yeah. Or their like, watches were broken in some way. Right. But in actual fact, in this, in, in the campaign that's being portrayed here, the shelling stopped seven minutes early and the Turks were like, huh. Seems like they were shelling us for a reason. Probably an assault is coming, and they all ran back in their trenches and yeah. picked their machine guns up. And like this, that actually happened, which is which is one of fifty stories like that during World War One. We talk about it over and over again on this show, like how vital communications are in the success or failure of a war or a battle. Right. What does this mean to a nineteen eighty one Australian audience? I mean, it is it. Is it a horrors of war film or is it like a don't trust don't trust the empire film because they're like an independent nation but they're still in the commonwealth they still they still have the queen and stuff right well but it begin um 
it began their sense of of like, wait a minute, we're actually a people here and not a not just British people that live somewhere else. And I get, I think it's credited with um with inspiring the independence movement. And and a lot of that that happened a lot during World War You mean the, the these events, not not the film. No, the, these events. I think the film is there to commemorate it. I think the film yeah. has power in Australia. Uh, this was their revolutionary war in a way, or, you know, like, and th- this happened in Newfoundland and Labrador too in Canada. Hmm. So it's not, uh, I think world war one really, it sowed the seeds of the destruction of the British empire all across the empire. This was like going into world war one. The empire was rock solid and coming out the other side. It was a shambles. That that's so interesting because that like those early conversations with Mel Gibson and and his I've been working on the railroad buddies are really about like to what extent you can hold the idea of national identity being linked to this island that's like on the other side of the planet <laughs> right from from where you live and they and some of them can get there and some of them can't and it, and to Mel Gibson it almost seems absurd. Yeah, I really like the case that he makes in that scene. Like, this is my identity. It's us sitting here working on the railroad. Right. What What else do you need? Right. I read a, I wish I could remember whose Twitter thread this was. It was that, Drill. I don't, I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> Some people will get that. Uh, I, I liked that. It was about like, um, you can think of the nation of France as the territory that Paris conquered and similarly you can think of the nation of Spain as the territory that Madrid conquered like the idea of a nation in in Europe to some extent is uh, like weirdly like the English were somewhat less less effective at that right like the 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 borders of Great Britain I think you know there there's like a a version of history where they more thoroughly uh, conquer, you know, Wales and Scotland and and Ireland and stuff like the 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 identity of that place becomes, you know, this is this is all English or whatever. Uh, the way and and like there are still remnants of that in in France and Spain, like the Basques and the Catalans and the and the Occitans and stuff. And and it and it like it it made me think a lot about like c- colonialism and and this movie. I guess I, I I must have watched like right after reading that because, you know, we, we, there's like one uh, Aboriginal character in this film. He's a very minor character at the beginning of the film who's just he's like the running buddy. But we see some an- anti-Aboriginal racism. But like, there's the other guy in the train station, right? That says it, it takes two weeks to walk across the sand. Was he not? Of yeah. That oh, right. Also? Yeah. He worked for the railroad. Yeah. I right. like that guy because he's just <laughs> laughing at them at yeah. how stupid their decision is. You're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> hey, why don't you leave me your shit? Because uh, <laughs> I don't want to walk out there to get it. The idea that this is all this is all just England in the nationalist way of thinking of it. And that is an idea that is easy to criticize when you're I've been working on the railroad guy in just like somewhere in the outback somewhere. Like the idea that they could they could raise an army to go fight this war that like like nobody makes the case of like why 
like why an Australian should give a shit uh, what happens at Gallipoli. Oh, well, you remember when they're talking to the when they're talking to the camel guy out in the middle of the salt pan and they say, oh, yeah, we're going off to to war. And he's like, there's a war. Why? (laughs) And they say, well, we're fighting the Germans. And he's like, really? Why? And Mel Gibson. They do. (laughs) Yeah. Mel Gibson keeps kind of pointing over at uh at archie and saying like ask him that guy ask gets him. it <laughs> yeah and archie's like uh because the germans are you know like it's clear that at, probably at, if you asked anybody right now like why are we fighting in why are we why are we threatening iran why did we uh why did we bomb that guy i mean 98 percent of americans would go uh he's bad and then the two other percent of americans that have read all up on it would say, right. boy, we don't know either. <laughs> the uh, are, are, yeah, because, yeah, because of the wonderful I, things he about does. About a month after nine eleven, I heard an NPR interview with a lady that they found who had not heard about nine eleven. She just was like a farm worker in like Ohio somewhere, and it, like news had not reached her. <laughs> right, kind of. <laughs> it was like amazing. But when you think about like how an identity forms, right? The people that uh, that live in the South in the United States, our uh, our Southern friends and brothers, they have grown <laughs> up with a very strong regional identity. The South, for the the entire history of the United States, has a sense of itself as a separate component of the United States and one that's kind of antagonistic sometimes to the rest of the U.S. But here where we live in on the Pacific coast, our identity is much less completely formed as, I mean, we don't think of ourselves normally as antagonistic toward the rest of the United States. We think of ourselves as a kind of a region, the Pacific and the Northwest in particular, kind of a region, but we don't think of ourselves as allied against the Yankees or against the people of the rural Southwest. But what would it take? What would it take? What will it take for the Pacific coast to start? I mean, what would it take for us to say, you know what? We're our own place now. We're going to start thinking of ourselves as Cascadia. During during the Trump administration, when they, um, when they started to uh, restrict immigration or to really crack down on immigration, the Western state governors all defied Washington and and made the Western states asylum states. And it was the beginning of a kind of sense of the West being a place apart, uh, that the governments were going to start asserting a different identity. Now, what it would take to see ourselves as so separate that we started saying things like, good day, or... <laughs> yeah, we, putting, start, we start making up our own accent yeah, out here. putting shrimps on the Barbie or whatever it is that they do. I mean, I think it would take a lot more, but... There are definitely, like, elements of the far left in the Bush administration years that talked about a California secession movement, and I haven't. I guess I haven't really heard that as much in the Trump years, but I don't know... Yeah, well, the rest of us uh, were I'm, like good riddance. Is it just is it just because I'm not in college, and therefore not hearing about that stuff? <laughs> I think that's what as, it is. But, <laughs> you stopped following those people on Twitter, started following some grown-ups. <laughs> but there's been a West Coast secession movement my whole life from from the from the early '70s, the the uh, Ecotopia and Cascadia 
Alaska never wanted this, right? Oh, Alaska would love to be their own country. Wouldn't they? Yeah, but they effectively are. Would anyone miss them? Oh, you would. (laughs) You'd miss us. I'm not sure that I felt the tragedy of Mel Gibson losing his best friend in that last scene as much as I felt the tragedy of of other people. Like it felt like Archie dying in that moment wasn't the wasn't the real point or the heart of that scene. And and that's not because it because the filmmakers didn't try to make the death of Archie into a tragedy that that grabbed us all. I think maybe the the Major Barton story and the story of just the bad, just the way that just the bad architecture of the moment ended up being the heart of the movie. And maybe that happened in the editing room because it seems like the way the script was laid out, the death of Archie was supposed to be the thing. I mean, Archie's the one person we see throughout the whole film, but I felt like the death of Archie was, I, I don't know. I didn't, I did, it didn't register to me as, as, as much of a tragedy as it maybe should have. I, I was, I was confused as to whether or not the film felt like the tragedy was that Mel Gibson hadn't made it up the hill in time. Like what was the, I feel like it maybe is a mistake to end on that freeze frame of him catching the bullets. I don't know why like ending on a freeze frame was so popular for a little while there in the 70s and 80s but like yeah. that just it do, it feels like uh not as impactful as something else that they could have done. Yeah, and then they like they go into Eye of the Tiger when the credits roll. I mean the 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 the, <laughs> the music is the thing that puts this movie that that really puts it in 1981 the yeah. the strange like like Michael Mann synth like <laughs> it, uh, and and it it's really out of place because it's not it only you know, appears you're, you're a couple of times kind of didgeridoo-esque sounds but you don't get native music orchestration here in that way no it's it's synthy and it's and miami vicey yeah and i thought for sure we would get a little bit of that i mean unfortunately at least in the parts that depict uh aboriginals Right, but but in that in the scenes where he's running down the side of the mountain, all yeah. of a sudden we're taken out of the verite of of machine gun, and we're put into this like which is like whoa, stop that, yeah, weird, yeah, weird choice. But in its time, would have been a weird choice. Really? I think. I mean, there weren't. There were plenty of movies getting made in 1981 that didn't go. Right, like I think every movie in '81 has that. (laughs) Because all the movies you watched in '81 were like Rocky Five, Rocky Six, Rocky Seven. It's a if you can think of a movie that didn't have that right into. I mean, in the early '80s, I'm thinking to the extent that you could call Gallipoli kind of a sports film, which I think many elements of it are. I think that is. That is a hand-in-glove kind of thing that a film of the early 80s has. It does have a sort of chariots of fire angle to it. I just wish that they'd use the same score. Hmm. If Mel Gibson had been running down the hill in slow motion and it had been like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, it would have been way better (laughs) than that weird, like, I don't know, that soundtrack just feels like what you hear when 
Coke dealers are running from the Coast Guard. I would have liked to see it with no score at all and just like the breathing and the footfalls. Right. And the report of the machine gun in the distance. Is making a movie about Gallipoli kind of like making a movie about Titan- the Titanic where it's like everybody knows what's ha- what happened if if you live in Australia? Right. Everybody in Australia knows, but I don't think anyone in America in 1981 knew what happened at Gallipoli Yeah, any more than they do now. I mean, the story of this film ends with Archie's death, but is the legend of Gallipoli so much more? Like, what happens after Archie dies at Gallipoli? They realize that they're, they spend like another four months there, uh, and then the Germans start, or, oh, you know what happens? Bulgaria enters the war, and all of a sudden the Germans have... Uh, access, direct access to resupply Turkey. And so Turkey starts getting all this, uh, all these armaments from Germany. Because one of the big problems, I think, for both sides uh, was that they kept running out of ammunition. The British couldn't resupply their ammo and the Turks couldn't either. I mean, the Turks slowed down their machine guns as uh, slow uh, as uh, possible uh, 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 to conserve. But uh, the but the Brits like and the French started to direct more of their energy elsewhere, and so they they staged this dramatic retreat, uh, where little by little they kind of pulled out onto the beaches, and they they um, at one point there's a guy from Australia who invented a mechanism where they could leave their guns on the trench line pointed at the Turks. And they and he built these little boxes where uh, water would drip into a little pan, and when the pan filled up with water, it would sink down and pull the trigger on the gun. And so they set these little, these little basically like sardine tins, f- that would fill up with water and shoot the guns to make the Turks think that there were still people in the trenches. Wow! So these guns are like bang, <laughs> bang, <laughs> bang, and he got this. This guy got on a got. Uh, an award like a medal and ended up as a ended up as an officer because he had invented this ruse that allowed the Australians to retreat back and get on the ships and get out of there with the with the leaving all their guns like bang bang and they uh, as they were retreating I think there were like a thousand horses that they just had to like mow down on the docks in order to prevent the Turks from getting their horses oh my god they just had to like kill like 500 or a thousand horses. I can horses. see why this film ends where it does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, it, the whole thing was a disaster. And you know, it, this affected the career of Churchill. This event was like a, a real sh- a black mark, a shame on the, on the Brits. Cause Churchill was going to be King, but then he had to settle for prime minister. Is that, well, you know, like you can't keep a, you can't keep a guy like Churchill down for long but he was he was lord of the you can't admiralty keep him clothed forever that's right he got he got demoted he definitely spent a few years in the doghouse before he he rehabilitated himself i mean this is just like conjecture but i mean when when australians think of gallipoli do they think of the beachhead of dead horses do they do they think of the lost cause do they think of the retreat do they think of this movie i think what they think is that this is an example of how the Australians performed valiantly and their English masters screwed everything up. And this was the moment that they realized they needed to go on their own. Right. Um, 
this is the inflection and, point and, in and their New Zealand history. too, right? Uh, the uh, when they say Anzac, it's Australia and New Zealand, and troops from both places. Like they were, they were brave, they were intrepid, and they were just mismanaged. And and the pooch was screwed, not by them. That's part of the. I think that's part of what makes those scenes so awful um, when they keep reporting down to to Colonel Robinson and Robinson is just steadfast in his like into the breach boys. It's not just about a failure of strategy there. This film has baked in this feeling of cultural difference and cultural condescension from the start, right? We get these, we get the, the suggestion of tea drinking Brits on a beachhead and the idea that, you know, our, our fun Australians are riding donkeys making fun of, of the stiff upper lipped Brits that, that control them like throughout, you know, like, like these differences are made apparent right away and they're mockable until it pivots into such a lack of respect for an Australian that you would just order them up over a trench to their death, right? Right. Right. Although the the British troops didn't fare any better, right? It's not, I mean, and you in, don't in, see that. In no, this in movie. this, in this scene, it's definitely portrayed as like, in order to protect the British landing, we're going to send the Australians into the meat grinder. I mean, that perspective is something I'm trying to interrogate here, because if you watch this thinking that it's just a failure of strategy, you could sort of go, well, shit happens and that sucks. But if you're looking at it as though a British colonizer doesn't have a sense of an Australian's worth as a human being, you're looking at murder. Right. And then you feel very different about this movie and what it's trying to say. Right. I mean, again, we're just guessing, but what do you think an Australian thinks? If you're in a position where an Australian officer orders you into the machine guns, you just walk away with a very different experience than being ordered into the machine guns by a British officer. Yes. And I think that's, um, yeah, that's got to be the key to it, right? And he's also like, he's like so British, right? He's got the, the RP accent, like it's... He's he's like upper crust type of type of guy, and that, he's and, in comfort and at a great remove from everything. But that's the great that's right. the whole story of the disintegration of an empire. Is not that I don't think when you look at the disintegration of the British Empire that you necessarily feel like all of the newly independent colonies put an end to war. Right. They just go into war from that point on under their own flag. And that's the sort of human that's the human experience is not is not that you believe that. I mean, you do believe you can govern yourself better than a colonial master, but you don't end up. no, No new colony has ever perfected a kind of utopian government that they always knew they could do if it weren't for their if it weren't for the cracking whip of their overlord. It's not for a lack of our effort, huh? Yeah, right. You just end up you end up uh, having the same human mistakes or you know, we all have the same foibles. It's just that there's you would much prefer to do it under the leadership of people that speak your own language, which in this case is Australian, which it turns out isn't actually a thing. 
<laughs> they basically invented it after this. Like shit, we yeah, need our, it was it was not yet a thing. We need our own dialect. Fuck. Hey, start talking funny. Okay. <laughs> hey, do that do that weird voice you do. <laughs> Isn't that the story behind why like we have different spellings for a bunch of like like we drop the u's out of a lot of words that have u's in them in in uh in the commonwealth is because the american revolutionaries were like we're gonna we're gonna be such a different country that we're gonna spell things even slightly differently it certainly was part of a what what was considered a kind of economical and more modern efficient way of spelling things it was part of the the attempt yeah, if you, if to you're modernize writing things out longhand. I mean, you want to take out as many letters as you can That's for right. time. Well, you know, after World War One, one of the things that Ataturk did uh, in modernizing and in, in forming a modern Turkey was he changed the alphabet from what had been the Ottoman script, which is a form of Arabic script. He 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 put Latin alphabet. And so Turkish now is spelled with Latin alphabet, although every single letter has some kind of or like some sort of uh, modifier so that if you look at the Turkish language <laughs> as it's written and try to pronounce it using your Latin pronunciations, I'm afraid you will fail, sir. But, oh. but if you That's go- That's real power. It's incredible. If you go to like a cemetery in Turkey, all the gravestones all have Arabic writing or, or old, you know, old Ottoman writing. It's only after 1922 that all of a sudden, I mean, the entire country, can you imagine that? Like, as of tomorrow, you're going to start using Latin writing, which starts on the left and goes to the right instead of, it's like, it's the ultimate version of we're going to change which yeah. side of the street we drive on. There's a, there's a bookstore <laughs> owner that's just like throwing his hands up. Like, just like, <laughs> I mean, all the people that were like, well, I never learned to read before. Why bother starting? <laughs> But but I mean, imagine it, that. it really makes it seem pathetic that we can't get on the metric system in this country when you think about something like that. <laughs> right? Or just but I mean, think of all the things that we cannot manage to do now. Yeah. Like, oh, it's impossible to, you know, to keep racism off of Facebook. It's like, well, <laughs> the Turks changed their alphabet, my friends. It's, it would be like somebody saying, oh, actually, we're going to start. We're going to continue to speak English, but we're going to spell it in kanji. It's a hell of a combination. <laughs> so, good luck. Man. It's review time on Friendly Fire, and that means uh, we slash I need to come up with a custom rating system based on an object from the film. No shortage of those in this film, but when I think of an object that is closely related to its theme... Uh, my mind rests on the stopwatch. It's the device that made you realize that Archie was great early on. It's also the device that used improperly for whatever reason causes a great amount of death at the end. Um, it's depended on for a lot of things and uh, it's, it results in a lot of success and abject failure depending on on how it's read. I think I really liked Gallipoli a lot, and I think I liked it for what it was and not what it wasn't. I enjoyed the long run out of, of a buddy film. I enjoyed getting to know Frank and Archie and their friendship as it went on. It sort of sets you up the way a lot of movies do for the fall. 
it gives you people to like and then it takes them away. And that's not a feeling unique to war films. I think that's just a a effective film thing to get a viewer to feel something at the end. And I certainly did when Archie was killed uh, by virtue of Frank's slowness. Frank's just too slow. I think we know that. I think Archie's the superior runner. Besides the relationship, I think this film was beautifully shot throughout those wide territorial shots of Egypt uh, during the war game, especially I thought were beautiful. That four shot with the three characters and the Sphinx head in the back. I got a real kick out of when they were like resting below the Sphinx. You see those four heads, that tent flap scene was, I think one of my favorites. And then finally at the end before, before the climax of the film that pan past all of the knives in the trench walls holding the letters home, I found super affecting and beautiful. I don't know what it is about a desert that inspires that kind of beauty with composition, but I think we've seen a lot of war films set in these parts of the world that are just really, really beautiful. And and I don't think I would think that initially, like what is there out in the desert, but nothing. But I think, I think this film does a great job in and making those places look great. It's also a film that shows you what evil is. Evil is a man with power making decisions based on either insufficient information or just ignoring the information he has and ordering people to their deaths. And that was like true ugly in that moment after after experiencing the beauty of a friendship that you get, that you get for the first hour and a half. It hurt to see the deaths of people that we like at the end. And I think it's what good films do. I think it's what good war films do is it gives you people to love and care about it and it kills them at the end. And the message at its conclusion is how awful war is and how it takes away the things and people that we love. And in that way, I think Gallipoli is a good to great war film. I think it's a I think it's a four and a half stopwatch film. I really, really liked it. I also really liked it. I uh it's not really trying to do the same thing as a lot of the of the films we watch for this project. And it does feel very much like the early work of a director, like everybody's favorite movie is or should be Master and Commander colon the far side of the world. And on a scale of one to five masters and commanders is what this should have been. <laughs> I I mean, like, it's hard to see like how the auteur of something like this gets there because it's this is such a stripped down simple story by comparison. Despite that, it's it is uh really lovely and uh and evocative of uh all of these like you know like the these ideas about patriotism identity friendship sacrifice all of that stuff is is very well drawn in this movie and uh i will give it uh four stopwatches also rupert murdoch is bad and mel gibson is anti-semitic i'm not sure uh i i i like your description of a war movie as something where as a thing where we're given people to care about and then we watch them die and and that is meant 
a certain way. That's certainly what an anti-war war movie uh, tries to do. There are a lot of war movies that try to show us that war is necessary or that war is unavoidable or that war has a larger purpose. You can still feel those things in those films when their characters die, though. Yeah, right? but but a lot of times uh, uh, we we get to know someone and and love them, and then they die. But we feel like their death, although a tragedy, is a necessary one. You know, I think that in general, the three of us are, if you could say whether or not we were anti or pro war, I think the three of us are anti war. Um, Don't put words in my mouth, John. But there are plenty of films we've seen where we feel like, oh, yeah, the larger story of this war was necessary. And, the you know, when um, when Private Ryan is saved, uh, I mean, my feeling was, look, if Private Ryan needs to die, then Private Ryan needs to die. We have to stop the German war machine. In this film, part of the story is that what happened at Gallipoli and really what happened in World War I often felt completely futile. Millions died in this war and at the end of the war a lot had changed but it was not, none of the things that changed were what anyone intended to change. The Germans didn't accomplish what they wanted. The British and the French didn't accomplish what they wanted. I mean, no one got what they wanted. Um, and yet the world was was forever altered. Only the Americans got out of World War I what they wanted, which was a Great Depression that, fo- that followed only, <laughs> only a decade later. We went in there hoping to get some roaring 20s and we got them. We got them. That's what happened. I mean, we, got, we made a lot of money on World War I. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> But um, it was great for the bottom line. But in terms of this movie showing us what Australia was like before and giving us a sense of what Australia was like after, it didn't. It gave us a glimpse of the bush. It gave us a sense of like a kind of pre-war innocence. Usually that gets you an R rating. Oh, my God. Oof. <laughs> But it, uh, but it didn't give us any real sense of like, well, what was Australia like after this? Uh, coming because we end on, um, on Archie, uh, dying in freeze frame, we don't see uh, a modern Australia rise from the ashes. We don't even all we can picture is Archie's family out in the, out in the bush getting this message, the, getting this telegram, and being sad. But we never really even see Perth. We don't. We don't have the full picture here, and and ultimately the friendship between the two guys isn't enough to carry the weight of Gallipoli, of Anzac, of um, the foundation of a modern Australia. It is a sports movie, and the war scenes are harrowing and if you have a structure of if you have world war one already built in your mind and you can put this in as another scene another setting and go oh god this was just like the same story was being 
repeated all across the globe. Same futility. But this movie doesn't give you even the whole setting of Gallipoli. So I found it, although there's a lot of beauty in it, and although I kind of like the sports movie, I found the whole movie just sort of fell short of my expectations. And maybe it was because I'd heard, I've heard of Gallipoli, the movie since 1981. I've heard it's a great movie and Mel Gibson is great in it, which he inarguably is. But I feel like it is a three and a half stopwatch movie. Not as, not as essential a watch as I expected it to be. And it's, and it's because I felt like the, the friendship between the guys could have delivered a lot more at the end in terms of uh, making us understand some larger thing other than just that Mel Gibson should have been a better runner. I feel like the senselessness is the message. I feel like that's true of this show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what sense can you make out of your guy, Ben? Uh, yeah, my guy uh, is uh, on screen only briefly. He's uh, he's in the scene where they're getting on the ship to to, to head out. They've uh, they've enlisted, and they're you know the major is kissing his wife goodbye, and everybody's going up the gangplanks, and the camera pans over, and there's a guy that has uh, has like crawled up one of the mooring lines just to hand a bottle of wine to someone on the ship. That's nice. And uh, I just thought that that was a really cool move, man. Like, yeah, send him off in style. Give this guy a bottle of wine. But also he's showing so, uh, off to all the all the ladies on the dock that are waving goodbye to their sweethearts. This guy's like, yeah. I'm sticking around. Look, and look, I've got wine. look what I could do. Well, he's in uniform, too. He's like, he's got... He's got a feather hat. He might oh. be in the light horse even. John is Friendly Fire's famous non-impressionist, and he is all over this episode doing I, impressions. I, but I can't. I mean, my Australian <laughs> accent, it, it, it has evaded me my whole life. I can't even, even at my best, I can only do like three words before I fall completely apart. And I, and I love the Australian accent. I have, I have so many friends in Australia, and I just can't do it justice. I need to go there and spend like two straight weeks there. just working yeah. on it. Immersion. You know, the, Immersion. Aus the Australian people and the New Zealanders love podcasts. They love our podcast. They have podcast festivals. And yet, Let's and go. yet, and they write us and say, come to Australia. And I, my answer is those festivals to fly us out. Yeah. 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 My answer is the same too. Send us the booking information for the festival appearances that you set up for us, Australian fans. Yeah. yeah. Josh Lindgren is waiting for your email. You got your independence. Now let's let's see it. Let's see the, where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Yeah. We'll review some other Australian war film for you. I'm sure there's one more. Sure. There's all, all those Nicole Kidman war movies. Mad Max Fury Road. Great film. It's kind of. Kind of a war film. I don't want to. I don't want to give Road away. War. I don't want to. <laughs> Road War. My guy's the train station guy. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm just calling him two weeks. Two mm -hmm. weeks. The train station guy is my guy in this film. I think when your two above the title characters are shiny and bright the way they are, 
and then you outshine them in a single scene with your with your two weaksness. Like he blows them off the screen with how with how crazy he is. <laughs> I love him. I love that he knows the insanities that they're embarking on. He's out there alone. He doesn't expect visitors. No. He's At like, all. Uh, hey, he's by the way, while you're walking through the desert, surely to your death, you wanna, you mind taking the mail with you? Yeah, that, that last request <laughs> is awesome. I love it so much. I love everything about him. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about these fucking assholes. Go out of the desert. He's great. He is great. He's my guy. He really stood out to me, too. He did. He did. As soon as he was on the screen, you were like, let's have this movie refocus itself on this guy. He's the type of character that I love in any kind of movie. The guy that takes over his one scene and he's acting across the main characters and just blows them away. Big fan. How about you, John? Well, we start this movie out at uh, at like dry pan station. <laughs> where Archie lives. You know, uh, kids love that show on PBS. <laughs> dry Pan Station. Yeah. <laughs> um, out at Dry Pan Station where Archie lives with his mom and his dad and his brothers and sisters and his uncle. And they're farming dirt and they've got cows and um, they're doing, uh, you know, they're doing their thing out there. And we are kind of we spend enough time with them at the start that it feels like this is where the movie is going to set its terms and we're going to meet the people that we're going to know for the rest of the film. It's weird because we have an antagonist in the form of uh, the mustachioed cowboy that defies Archie and is uh and is like generally a bad actor. He's a racist guy. He he's got he's he's everything that we don't like in a character. He does reappear in the film at the very end, but the movie gives him to us as like here's our antagonist and then the movie takes him away. He disappears. Well, we see him we see him at the enlistment station when he calls Archie out as being underage. Again, suggesting that we're going to see him over and over. He's he's the bad guy. But he's not. He at the end when we see him, it's just it just gives us a taste of like even the bad guys die in this movie. But it's not he doesn't end up being bad. But the hero of the beginning of this movie is the uncle. The uncle who apparently had the world record for the hundred yard dash or something. And he's training Archie. He's like he seems like maybe he's cruel at the start. But it turns out he's just strict and actually he loves Archie even more than his mom and dad. He's like Archie's father figure. He's got a stiff upper lip. He's a badass. He's, he's the Bill Bowerman of the film. He's built the Bill Bowerman of the film. And he was my guy from the moment he appeared. Just like a great guy. A guy I wanted to re I wanted to come back to him at the end of the movie. I wanted him to I wanted to see him suffer the loss of Archie. I wanted to see him play some role in the making of a modern Australia. Um, and I had to imagine that, but I, but his characterization was good enough that I did. I was able to imagine it. And, uh, I thought he did a, I thought he did a great job. He's got a great mustache. He had all the things that I like in a character. 
grit, moxie, mustache. <laughs> what did you think of Archie's beard? The glue on jab. You know, that actually one time at uh, at Bumbershoot, uh, I hosted a a talk where the um, science fiction writer Isaac Marion was there with the um, with the internet phenomenon and producer of The Bachelor, Elon Gale. Uh, as part of this panel and Elon actually cut some of my beard off with a pair of scissors and glued it to Isaac Marion's face. That is very <laughs> intimate. It was. And it was, I think for Isaac, especially extremely repulsive, but I've seen did he, it. Did he glue it into like a Hitler mustache? No, he motif? tried to do this same thing, like make a, make a beard, uh, on Isaac's face. And uh, so when that scene happened in this movie, Did I was like- Did it take seed? I've like, lived there. Is your beard so strong that you could just replant it on another person's face and it would grow? <laughs> because if that's the case, John- I know. I would take you up on I know. That. There you are, right across from me. I could put a mustache on you in a I really second. felt seen when, when Archie had to, had to get a fake beard going. Like, I'd need to do that. I, think I, I couldn't enlist right now. I think Isaac struggled to get that beard off. So in that sense, it did take root. We never see the aftermath of him waking up the next morning and his pillow is just a fucking atrocity. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like glued itself to the rest of his face like like the Wolfman. We'll work on your mustache, Adam. That All can right. be something that we do on stage live at the... On stage in Australia yeah. at the podcast festival. Thank you. I wanted to give honorable guy mention to Sergeant Sayers, who's the uh, sergeant that gives them the talk about don't get an STD from the local prostitutes in Cairo speech. Pretty great. I love that the sign. The sign was also yeah. uh, something that did not appear in the middle school version of this film. Just a big drawing of junk. <laughs> Fun. He, he knows that they are not going to take this seriously. He knows he has to do it. He's just going to get through it. You know, ask anyone who's who's made to give a presentation. You want you want good visuals mm -hmm. to capture a person's attention. And uh, and the drawing of a penis and testicles will often do that. I, I used to do that all the time in my previous <laughs> life as an office worker. It yeah, really, really kicks the meeting off. Right. It's not a penis. This is a penis. <laughs> One, two, yeah. What's our next film gonna be, John? Oh, you want me Only to roll? Only you and your die can decide. The magical die. Oh, yeah. look, I have the die here, but I also have some kind of like squeezy ball, some therapy, hand therapy squeezy ball. I don't know where it came from. Um, let me uh, let me uh, roll this die right now. Roll that bone. Sixty two sixty two sixty two is a World War Two film, Battle of the Atlantic being the subject, directed by Mervyn Leroy in nineteen forty three. War movie. A during the war war film. It is action in the North Atlantic. Action in the North Atlantic. I like movie titles that just do what they say on the tin. 
You know where you are. <laughs> you know what it's going to have. Action in the North Atlantic. Humphrey Bogart, oh, guys. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart. This is, is this the second time we've seen him? African Queen. We saw Queen him in was, the African yeah. Queen. I thought we would have more Bogart films in this project. I'm shocked that this is the second yeah. one. Well, you know, what ha- what happened to this project was that it got a lot bigger than our initial idea. Yeah. And it got a lot bigger right away when we realized, yeah. well, unless we're going to confine ourselves to war movies that star Humphrey Bogart, we're going to have to include a right. lot more. <laughs> and that becomes a bigger project. And I'm so glad that that's what happened. But there, yeah. there are a lot of bogey movies waiting for us out there. Yeah. God bless him. Well, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. Uh, we will leave it with Rob's from here. In the meantime, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is a podcast that's made possible by the support of our listeners like you. To make sure that Friendly Fire continues, visit MaximumFun.org join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to our monthly Pork Chop episodes, as well as all the other MaxFun bonus content. If you want to chat about our podcast on various forms of social media, just search for our discussion groups or use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is found at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And you can find me at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.